1: this podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp. BetterHelp is a customized online therapy that offers video phone and even live chat sessions with your counselor so you don't have to see anyone on camera if you don't want to it's much more affordable than in-person therapy and you can start communicating with your counselor in under 48 hours it's not a crisis line it's not self-help it's professional counseling done securely online it's convenient it's professional, and it's affordable. Join over 1 million people who have taken charge of their mental health. And again, that's betterhelp, betterhel com forward slash Billy. This is a crowd podcast. This is We Didn't Start the Fire, the only podcast started by me, Billy Joel.
0: Einstein. James Dean. Brooklyn's Got A Winning Team. Davy Crockett, Peter Pan. Elvis Presley. Oh, Hunka Hunka. Hunk Thank you very much. Hello again, and welcome to episode 47 of We Didn't Start the Fire, the history podcast that cracks open Billy Joel's rock'em sock em, action-packed hit song for the most surprising stories of the late 20th century. I'm Katie Puckrick. And I am Tom Fordyce. How did we get to where we are today? Billy thinks it might have something to do with Elvis Presley. Katie, I think
1: we've been looking forward to this one, haven't we? Uh,
0: I am really looking forward to it. I've been lubing up my knee joints and my <laughs> swivel hips.
1: Your favorite Elvis song? And it's a hard question.
0: Well, uh, there's so much to choose from, but I am partial to the eerie, almost supernatural blue moon. Really? Yeah, I, I find it very spooky and alluring. How about you? I would
1: either go very early Elvis, Katie, I'd go Sun Records, I'd go that magical band of which we will talk about more later, or I would jump forward a number of years, 16, 17 years, to Suspicious Minds, Leather Jumpsuits and Suspicious Minds.
0: You like a little bit of paranoia in your Elvis, don't you?
1: (laughs) I also like the Fine Young Cannibals cover of Suspicious Minds, but I'm not going to talk about Fine Young Cannibals today because the show is not about them.
0: You are always trying to talk about 80s pop music, (laughs) no matter what happens. If it's Doris Day, you're talking about (laughs) Wham!, uh, yeah, Johnny Ray, Johnny's R-
1: midnight runners.
0: You have just been programmed as a 1980s jukebox. You know, speaking of Elvis paranoia, I quite enjoy that song about talking in your sleep. Yeah. Uh, if you talk in your sleep, forget that you know me. all this like uh, He's like he's a bit of a, a dark character sometimes, I think.
1: Well, Katie, we are going to get right into the Elvis mood. We are talking today to author and lifelong Elvis fan and historian Sally Hodel. Uh, Sally also wrote the Elvis book, Destined to Die Young. Sally, welcome to We Didn't Start the Fire.
2: Hello. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here.
1: I almost feel like our first question, Katie, to Sally, should be the one we just asked each other. What is your favorite Elvis song, Sally?
2: Well, as Katie said, there's so many to choose from, and I do have favorites. You know, from every decade because I love it all. Uh, but I always say my favorite is always on my mind.
0: Oh, that is a really. You know what? That's a great choice because it's so. It's vulnerable, Elvis. Like there's you no- can feel it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's not afraid to lay bare his need. For me, I think he was singing that one to me. (laughs) Well, it's been said that he was the best interpreter of song. And I think it's in songs like that,
2: you know, always on my mind and in the ghetto where Kentucky rain, where you just really feel like he's in Kentucky walking through the rain, right? I mean, that was one of his biggest gifts was to really interpret song and put that emotion in there.
1: So much to talk about with Elvis, Sally. So I think we should probably do this, at least at the start, chronologically. So the Elvis of later years, the fame, the wealth, he can pretty much summon up anything he wants at the click of his fingers. But at the start, it's the opposite of all that.
2: Absolutely. You know, Elvis grew up in a type of poverty that I think is rarely understood today. Post Great Depression, deep in the South, uh, it it was extreme poverty. And he moved, you know, many, many times, 12 times in his first 13 years. Uh, You know, a place was not... A house, a place was not home for Elvis. The three of them, him and his mother and his father, his family, that was his home because they did move so much. Uh, But the community of Tupelo was also, you know, a standard and people there did rely on each other because they were so poor. And that absolutely, you know, impacted Elvis and shaped who he was, you know, without question. Elvis was a twin. Is that right?
0: Yes. His brother Jesse was stillborn. And uh, yeah, he was a twin. Do you think that that had, Any kind of lingering effects just in the dynamic of the family, like either either from his mother or just a feeling that he had, like a missing part of himself? I think it was something that I mean, they certainly
2: didn't forget Jesse. Right. He was always thought of without question. But you have to also remember that they were struggling so much that it was about survival. And Johnny Cash talked about it, you know, after his brother died. He said, you know, if you would have seen my mother on the Monday after they buried my brother, she was just right back out there in the cotton field because there wasn't time to mourn. They had to survive. And I mean, we have to remember that about the Presley's too. Yes, Jesse was stillborn, and yes, they were sad, but they had Elvis. And he also had compromised health at birth. He had low birth weight and Gladys had lost a lot of blood. So they were both sent to the hospital for three weeks after that, which would have been very rare at the time when you know babies were born at home. So I think the initial worry was Elvis and Gladys without question. And that must've been very difficult for Vernon, his father. Um, so it did stick with him, but I, I think that idea that he talked to his twin or felt like he had to live for both of them was, has been exaggerated over time as well.
0: I want to get into how he started to absorb music, because he was always open to influences from all sorts of different kinds of music. And apparently at school, he was given a hard time for uh, the hillbilly music that he favored. He used to bring his guitar in. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Well, in the beginning, I think he was
2: kind of made fun of for taking his guitar. But then he also talks about how uh, in high school, he was in a talent show. And once the girls realized he could sing, you know, that kind of changed everything for him too. So, yeah, he had a lot of influence. He heard a lot of different types of music, uh, you know, over the radio and whatnot. And of course, in the places he lived, Tupelo for sure, um, where people would sit on their porch and that type of thing. And, And then certainly in Memphis. So he moves to Memphis, you know, as a teenager and and the city of Memphis does become a big influence on on the types of things he hears as well.
0: And so this would have been what in the
2: 40s, late 40s, early 50s. Late 40s. 1948 he moves to Memphis, so you know that certainly changes some of the things that he hears too. But I think a lot of that is just naturally within Elvis. I think that rhythm that he has, you know, he was born with and certainly what he hears influences him, but I think there's a certain amount of that that is just innately you know, in some of these super creative geniuses.
0: And also just to get a sense of kind of the world uh, socio politically that he grew up in, in Tennessee in those years, it probably was not uh, segregated because uh, we're all poor people kind of poor together, black and white, or what was the situation?
2: Yeah, I think that socio- the socioeconomic line, in my opinion, was much stronger than the racial line in the South. And uh, yeah, there are, African-Americans on record who knew Elvis, and and they lived even in Tupelo. One of the last places they lived was in a Black neighborhood, and they were the only white people living there. And it, it was reflective of just how poor they were. Uh, but when some of these Black people were interviewed, they said, you know, we were all in the same boat. Poverty was our shared line. It's always forgotten that a lot of poor white people picked cotton in the 1930s and the 1940s in the South. And it was certainly the case for Carl Perkins and his family, for Elvis and his family, for Jerry Lee Lewis and his family, for Johnny Cash and his family. You know, we talk about this unique sound that came out of the 50s, but it really came out of a place and a time and a level of poverty that they all shared.
1: Would Elvis have had to hunt down? the sort of music he he was listening to, Sally. If you're a teenage kid in Memphis, if you're 13, 14, where would you hear these different sounds?
2: Yeah, I think he had to go and look for it. And Elvis, you know, there are stories of him going to black churches and and hearing that. And he grew up in, you know, an Assembly of God church where there it would have been a very boisterous, you know, situation of a lot of rhythmic music and and so he had that within his own church as well, but also in the in the 50s, you know, there was a radio station uh, hosted by Dewey Phillips. And late at night, there was a show called Red Hot and Blue, and it would play black blues music. And Elvis was not the only white kid in town listening to it, you know, and he wasn't the only Memphis wasn't the only place that was happening. I think 1950s America, there's a whole generation of kids that are wanting to have their own sound and their own music. They don't want the Frank Sinatra and the Bing Crosby of their parents generation. And, you know, Elvis was a huge factor of making that go literally worldwide, but there were pockets of this happening all over the country. And especially in places like Memphis.
0: Talking about him wanting his own sound what about him wanting his own look? When did he start darkening his hair? I heard that he blackened it with shoe polish.
2: Yeah, he would probably do that from time to time as a poor kid with no other options, right? He would he would experiment with his look. He certainly created his look, you know, without question. Lots of kids on record that he went to high school with saying everybody knew when Elvis walked down the hall because he looked different from everyone else. And in a lot of times it wasn't in a good way. You know, it was kind of like, who is this rogue? <laughs> dressed different looks different has what they considered to be long hair at the time right Yeah, because everybody's wearing jeans and white t-shirts and crew cuts and Elvis has his black pants with the pink stripe down the side and the <laughs> you know the the big <laughs> hair and the sideburns so he was very different to everyone at his high school and I, I think he was mimicking what he would see in the movies you know he would go to the movies it was one of his favorite things to do from very early on whenever he could afford to do it um even in Tupelo and The James Deans and the Marlon Brando, you know, and all those types were who he certainly emulated. You know, Elvis did not happen overnight. He did work at uh, creating his look and his sound,
0: and it started as early as high school. I'm interested that he had this sense of theatricality. So he's living in such a poverty-ridden environment and in a community and yet he has dreams he has aspirations where does this all come from i mean it's not just like oh i want to make myself into a, a a better richer person it's like i want to project myself into this kind of mythological figure where where does this come from sally
2: well again i so much of elvis you know i say all the time understanding elvis it does not come from understanding his relationship with his mother, although that is where history kind of landed for a very long time. Um, understanding Elvis is understanding his relationship with poverty, and I think creating this image, creating this look, like you said, maybe with black shoe polish, you know, any way that he could with the limited resources he had, uh, was his way of visually projecting himself outside of his situation. But his his main drive was to provide. It was never to be famous. It was never to be this big entertainer. He wanted to provide for his family. He wanted to pull his mother and his father out of poverty. And and he did that. And, it, and that doesn't change in 1956 when he becomes a millionaire overnight, quite literally. So, his drive is to pull his mother and father out of poverty without question. And that is why he creates this character, so to speak. This is why he creates this look. It's why he hones his sound. I mean, if you listen to the first recording that Elvis did at Sun Records, it, it doesn't sound like the, you know, the most famous person that's ever going to live. <laughs> he has to work at all of that. And his main drive is, is to pull his parents out of poverty.
1: That first day... Sally, that he walks into some records in Memphis of all of rock and roll's founding myths. This is maybe the most famous of all, isn't it? Even more so than Robert Johnson supposedly selling his soul to the devil at the crossroads or, you know, John and Paul meeting at um, meeting at the local fate in Liverpool. This is one of the great founding myths of rock and roll. So let's talk about that a little bit because Memphis at that time is fascinating anyway the mix of stuff that's going on, the music you can hear, the the clubs on Beale Street, the clothes, um, that idea that this new world is coming, but it's somehow transgressive as well. So just paint a little scene for us. When he first walks in and he meets Sam Phillips, what's it all like?
2: we can't discredit or or downplay the importance of Sam Phillips and all of that. Right. And in the importance of the music scene in Memphis, because he was doing incredible things even before Elvis walked in there and Elvis did go in, he wanted to record, you know, the, the old story, right. As he wanted to record a song for his mom. Um, I think he wanted to hear how he sounded, you know, kind of like with fingers crossed, like maybe this is how I could make a living. And, um, he recorded. It was a quite a while before Sam called him back. You know, the secretary there famously wrote, "You know, good-looking kid, good ballad voice," on the on his file. And I think it was a year before they called him back. And Sam Phillips asked Scotty Moore and Bill Black, the famous you know guitarist and bass player, uh, to sit down with him and and go over some songs. They met at Scotty's apartment and they did that and even Scotty was reported back like well he has a good voice but you know not super impressed let's try again in the in the studio so it was you know on July 4th that they the three of them gathered at or July 3rd excuse me that the three of them gathered at Sun Records and that's really when the magic happened you know again they were tossing songs back and forth and it was on a break that Elvis just started messing around with That's All Right, Mama, an old blues song. And Sam said, hey, stop a minute. You know, I like that. And then they all started jamming to it. And the first take is the take. (laughs) Like it really, the big bang of rock and roll really was a bit of an accident in many ways.
0: I really love the spontaneity of that. And it just goes to show you that, um, you know, we have this idea that uh, if somebody is destined for greatness, they just pop out of the egg, ready to go, ready for their close-up. And I actually find it encouraging that it took Elvis a little while to hone his look, hone his sound, find his area, find his level. You know, the fact that the people that he worked with kind of went, well, you know, he's sort of good enough. You know, it's that sort of Madonna idea where, you know, she's not the best singer in the world, the best musician in the world, but she has that drive, that incredible ambition. And um, it almost seems like Elvis had that uh, that sort of impact. Uh, what was his magic once he got all of the elements together? What was it that seemed so different, so radical to his fans? I think what makes Elvis radical to everyone you know, come
2: 1956 when he becomes certainly coast to coast here and then spreads around the world, right, is the combination of his look and sound. Because we have to remember that other people were trying to make rock and roll at that time. They were making rock and roll and they were successful at it. When you think of Bill Haley, rock around the clock, uh, and the difference is the look, right? It's the look because Bill Haley looked like anybody's father. He dressed like their dad. He looked like their dad. And Elvis comes out, sounds different, and looks different too. So we cannot underestimate the power of the television. So then how much of Elvis is timing, right? Yeah. He is, it's timing with all of a sudden there's a television in everybody's living room and they can see how different he looks and then they can hear how different he sounds and they can see those dance moves, which were, (laughs) and that is really, you know, one of the other things that radically sets Elvis apart. He didn't just stand there and sing. And when you look at the the record, you know, the top charts from 1956 before Elvis, it's the Andrew sisters and songs like, how much is that dog in the window? <laughs> and it's it's Tony Bennett and it's Perry Cuomo. And when you look at that, you can understand how radical Elvis had to be when he came on the scene in comparison to those things that were top 10 chart, topping songs and recording artists.
1: Casey, I was watching uh, the other day, the clip uh, which you can find on YouTube from the Ed Sullivan show. In September 1956, this is the one that is watched by 80% of the US TV audience at the time. And there's something about Elvis, he simultaneously not threatening but you can see how different it is from the screams of the audience and the fact that Ed Sullivan clearly doesn't like him very much in <laughs> yeah. the way that he doesn't like the Beatles very much a few years later but also he's really vulnerable Elvis seems really vulnerable because he's so young and he's so fresh-faced Thank you very much. and he starts trying to introduce the songs and he makes a bit of a joke out of it and then the music starts and he does the Elvis arm and he does the Elvis knee and it is like a spark has just been lit across the whole of America
2: as a great philosopher once said, and it's so raw, isn't it? Like that's the yes. word I always use. It for the fifties. I love the fifties. I love every decade, but I love the fifties because it's so raw. Like it's just you can see it evolving. Yeah, like it's <laughs> you never, can hear it.
0: It's never been done before. Elvis did it at that moment on that television show, and we're all watching it. You know, if we're there in front of the television at that stage, and we're all just activated. We're protoplasm. That has just got the zzz, And then we're, you know, alpha zombies forevermore. And you can still
2: feel it when you watch it 60 years later. And I think that's the most amazing
0: thing. So was he famous overnight after doing um, Steve Allen and the Ed Sullivan shows?
2: Well, like you said, it took a lot of work to get there, right? It didn't sure. happen overnight. I mean, he tours the South in, the <laughs> in an old Cadillac with the big bass strapped to the roof, you know, and all the guys stuffed inside, uh, you know, in 1955 and early 56, they are still crisscrossing the South uh, in that car, you know, with little time to spare in between shows and two lane highways and dirt roads and all of that. So they've certainly paid their dues without question. Uh, When they get to New York and they record those first television shows, that is the The big change because he stops being a regional sensation and again i think it was just a different sound a different look the response from the girls like you said you know these were girls who who sat nice and (laughs) listened to music before elvis and now you see them standing up and screaming and you know like you said he just has to kind of give that look you see him give that look, you know, or that lip thing on those early television shows and they scream. And then what I love is that he always kind of laughs, right? Like he can see the humor in it too, because it almost surprises him every time a little bit too. And I think that's really the, that's part of what makes Elvis so endearing too. He wasn't this pompous rock and roll star, you know?
1: And Katie, the more I think about it, the, the, I mean, we are we are getting Elvis second or third hand, aren't we? We weren't there watching in 1956 no. when he's on Ed Sullivan. So we're watching it and we're seeing the shock of the new. But we we're aware of everything that came after. We're aware of punk. We're aware of the Beatles before that. We're aware of all the stuff. So I think it's probably really hard for us to put ourselves in the shoes of kids who would have been watching that and the effect it would have had.
0: You say that, Tom, but Elvis is very particular in that... There's never been another Elvis, you know, like there there's certain things like, oh, I don't know. You can go back and watch the first Star Wars film and think uh, it's a bit standard. And it's only a bit standard because it set the template for all of these kind of heroic, you know, space guy movies that have happened since then. But no one has ever come along since Elvis, uh, not even Shaken and Stevens and, <laughs> and and done what Elvis did. So I think it is sort of easy to put yourself back in that mindset he was he was so Singular. I mean, I remember um, coming across a set of photographs that were taken on that, that first tour, Sally, that you were talking about when they're crisscrossing the South. You know, the whole band stuffed into to one station wagon and they make their way up to New York to, to do those first TV shows. And there's a backstage photo in the stairwell of a theater in Richmond, Virginia called The Mosque. And I used to live in Richmond and I, I know that theater well. And he's in the stairwell. He's looks beautiful and he's got his shellac quiff and he's with a pretty little ingenue and they're doing a little canoodling i think he might have like playfully sort of stuck his tongue out and they're sort of touching tongues and it's a very sweet intimate shot and you're thinking this is the cusp of him being you know king of rock and roll uh, sex god and also he's still pure then, you know, it's before he starts to sully himself with the excesses of fame. And I don't know, it's quite, it's really poignant looking at those pictures.
2: It, it is. That's a great photo. And I know the one you're talking about, and all those 1956 photos are so iconic, because he's so iconic. Mm. Uh, but it, it does need to be studied, you know, us watching it and feeling the response that we get and knowing that, Uh, It was so new and so different, and we still feel that watching it, but young people need to see it. Young people need to know about the contribution of Elvis Presley. And I say all the time that, you know, we really, and one of the goals of my book was to look at him as a historical figure. Because when we only look at Elvis as a rock and roll star, then you are very limited through the scope of sex, drugs, and rock and roll. And that is not enough for Elvis because he was a historical figure. Just in the same way that Henry Ford and Thomas Edison shifted our universe, so did Elvis, just in a cultural way. Uh, but nothing was the same after Alvis, nothing. Right I mean, it, it changed yeah. music, it changed pop culture, and not just in the States, but as you know, world over, and still does.
0: <laughs> well, after that, I need to collect myself for a moment. So let's take a break for some ads.
1: This is the story of Whitney Houston, of George Michael, of Otis Redding, of Amy Winehouse, of Michael Hutchins, Bob Marley. This is the story of Prince.
0: It's a new podcast series.
1: About how they died, and why we're still talking about them so long after. It's like nothing you've ever heard before. That feeling. That feeling.
0: Just search for Death of a Rockstar on your podcast app.
1: And subscribe now.
0: I'm interested in the fact that Elvis didn't try to finagle his way out of being drafted in the army. He just hit it big and in 1956, and then in 1957, he gets the call-up. Yeah, well, Elvis was a patriot. He knew that the kind of
2: shift that happened in his life from extreme poverty to what would become one of the you know highest taxpayers in the country uh, could only happen in the United States. To make that big leap, that leap which would take three or four generations in most families, you know, Elvis did in one year, pulling not only like I said his himself and his parents out of poverty, but so many other people that he knew and. Uh, he loved his country for that. He loved the possibility that was possible here. You know, the, the American dream, right? It's the American dream. And Elvis epitomizes that without question when you consider just how poor he was. Uh, so he was a patriot. He he wanted to serve his country, but he also didn't want to go. I mean, obviously, he, he had just begun to really enjoy what money could buy and the comforts of that life. And then he has to leave it all behind.
1: When he's in the army, Sally, He's not marching up and down parade grounds. He's not got his face in the dirt, has he? So he's stationed in Germany. Um, He has a sergeant... He gets along with quite well, and they've got a taste for the same amphetamines. And then he lives off camp at nighttime in a hired house. He's got the Memphis Mafia in there. There's a lot of stories about after-hours parties, about strippers. And also, he falls in love with a 14-year-old girl.
0: She's a little girl. How old was he? He
2: was in his 20s, and she was 14. I think he was 20, 22, 23, probably, 23. Um but you have to remember it was a different time and i talk about this a lot in the book as well especially in the south women are getting married girls are getting married at age 15 and 16 quite routinely and it's still happening in 1956 57 around that time without question you know a lot of, they drop out of school they they get married and that was not abnormal Now we look back at that and it seems like, geez, she was so young. And she absolutely was. Uh, But people got married very young back then.
0: Although she's not from the South. Her dad's a a fighter pilot or
2: what? Yeah, he was he was in the military as well. He was in the military as well. And that's why they were in Germany. Mm -hmm. Um, But for I'm just saying for Elvis, um, you know, it would not have been abnormal to if he had been living in the South still and had not become Elvis Presley. It would not have been abnormal for him to marry someone who was 15 or 16 years old. It was still happening all the time. And I know that's hard for us to wrap our brains around, but it's absolutely true.
1: Well, Jerry Lee Lewis famously married his own cousin when she was 13, didn't he?
2: Yeah. And he even says, look, I'm still surprised at what a big deal that was because it was perfectly normal in the southern states of America (laughs) at that time. And and, and he's right. It just was. Even a lot of Elvis's classmates, you can find people to interview and they'll say, well, I, I only knew him up until you know my sophomore year because then I dropped out and got married. So I wasn't there to graduate with him. Um, there were a number of people in his class that that was true about as well. So... Again, history has to be looked at through the lens of when it happened and not through a
0: 2021 lens. Sure, sure. And he he was still uh, dating around, though, because I do remember seeing snaps of him squiring various lovely German damsels around town. Elvis was always dating around.
2: (laughs) He never stopped. You know, I interviewed uh, Barbara Hearn-Smith, who he dated in 1956. And her famous line is always, so you dated Elvis for a year. And she says, well, I dated Elvis for a year. He <laughs> he never dated anyone more than 15 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> oh,
0: gosh. The harsh truths. The harsh truths of Elvis. Yes. The breakdown of Elvis and Priscilla's marriage Um, I guess it's somewhat inevitable they've been together since she was a child Um, he's fooling around all the time she's fooling around too but I did read an interesting little tidbit where Priscilla said that Elvis never saw her without makeup and he didn't want to see her getting dressed because he just wanted the end result Um, which I think is funny like you know I, I don't want to see the webbed feet paddling below the surface I just want the pretty white fluffy swan gliding across the pond. But it does seem that he was a little controlling Sally, like he he chose what clothes she wore. Yeah, those are the
2: stories that she tells that, you know, he perhaps shaped her into, you know, the type of person that he wanted to marry, wife material. He's always this dichotomy between, I'm this humble guy who grew up in the South, and I respect everybody and show everyone respect. And I don't know how I got to be Elvis Presley, and I'm so grateful for it opposed to the other, I'm Elvis Presley, and I can do anything I want and have anything I want. And there's always that kind of pull, you know, between those two. So
0: Elvis is somebody who I know from what you're saying that he genuinely decided to discharge his duty to America by, you know, signing up for service Mm -hmm. in the army. But a cynical person would have deliberately done that as a fantastic pr move i mean he couldn't have he couldn't have chosen better i mean i think he definitely won over people who were a little cynical about him the fact that he served and I think a lot of people said, well, you know, I wasn't really sure about him. He looked a little thuggy, a little bit like a greaser, but my word, you know, he's there marching for uncle Sam. So yes. I think he did a, a really good thing. Don't you? I do.
2: And that, it, that was the agenda of the Colonel, you know, that was his idea is that he goes in the army and, and ah. it'll work out the way that it did. But hindsight's 2020, 20, sure. it was a big risk. Okay. Just cause it worked out and it turned out well, you know, it was still a huge risk. Everyone could have forgotten about Elvis yeah. or moved on to someone else or, you know, any of those things could have happened. Elvis was very fearful that his career was over. No one would remember him in two years. Uh, his manager, the Colonel, was instrumental in that. You know, they recorded a bunch of music before he left and then they he released that over those two years. That was a brilliant thing to do. And yes, without question, it widened his base. And this was something I found really interesting. You know, my dad was born the same year as Elvis and was always a Frank Sinatra fan. Huh. He liked older Elvis, right? And that's where I first discovered Elvis because he would play records on Saturday and Sunday and things like that. Uh, But in talking to him, you know, why weren't you a fan in 56? And he would say, Elvis was for the girls, Oh. boy guys did not like Elvis because when you think about like the teeny bopper boy bands right it's always the girls that like them and that's kind of what Elvis was in 56 initially and and I can't tell you how many 80 something year old men have told me the same story and their same story also continues with but once he was in the army I totally changed how I
0: felt about him and I liked him after that I'll tell you what Sally that is the same old story over and over again <laughs> where the girls are the early adopters, the girl, the little girls get right? it. And then the boys come along later and they're like, okay, I get, I guess I'm into the Beatles now. But it's just so interesting how if young women like something, then it's considered, you know, Cheap. trivial, banal and trite. Absolutely. I have a funny story to share real quickly on that because again, it just captures it and I love it. I'm good
2: friends with Ron Strauss, who was the co-pilot of the Lisa Marie for, you know, Elvis's airplane. Yeah. And uh, they were close in age. So the first time that, you know, Ron meets Elvis, Elvis says, Ron, you know, we're pretty close in age. What did you think of my music when it first came out? came out back in the fifties. And Ron said, well, to be perfectly honest, I hated your ass. <laughs> and Elvis was kind of like taken aback, you know, he's like, what, do you care to explain that? Huh. <laughs> and Ron, said, Ron says, sure. You know, I was taking out a lot of pretty young ladies back then. And all they wanted to do was talk about you. And I got a little tired of that. Ha. Huh. <laughs> uh. And then Elvis says, well, so what do you think of me now? And Ron said, well, of course I think you're great now, you know? <laughs> so that kind of, that story kind of captures, you know, the, the 20-something-year-old average American male in the 50s. um, I think appreciating the sound that Elvis was putting out there, but not so much how much the women loved him.
1: One of those things about the early period, Katie, you talked about the poignancy of that image on the stairwell of the theatre. For me, everything that Elvis goes on to do from the late 50s until the big comeback at the end of the 60s, it makes those early years seem more poignant because when he's the rebel and he's new and he's fresh like we said earlier, there is just this electricity about him. And then I always find sadly the point when he joins the army and then he starts making an unbelievable number of very cheesy movies. (laughs) I almost feel cheated because he feels like this total outsider who's revolutionized the world. And then he goes mainstream and buys back into the square world really quickly
2: true and the torturous question is what kind of music might he have made yeah <laughs> right in the 60s if that whole movie thing did not happen however yeah you know, there's a there's a lot of ways to look at that and one of the things about the movies is that they all made money the soundtracks all made money like they might look really cheesy and bad to us now and some of them really are uh, there's a lot of great films in there too without question you know viva las yeah. vegas there's a there's a lot of really great movies but um the movies were very successful and they made a lot of money. And that's why he got kind of stuck in that cycle. But I think the Colonel too was concerned with the British invasion and the bands, right? Like those, the sixties was a time when just the one guy singing, you know, wasn't as typical as the Beatles and the bands and all these groups that were coming up. And he was afraid maybe Elvis wouldn't sell out. Maybe he wouldn't fill stadiums anymore, you know, or arenas or whatever they were using back then. Um, I think that was a concern. So In some ways, it's it's a unique approach to his career, because then when Vegas and all that comes along in 69, he's touring like crazy again. And that that British
0: invasion thing that happens, you know, (laughs) has passed, has passed. So I never really thought of it like that. And let's get into the colonel. So you mentioned his manager, Colonel Mm -hmm. Tom Parker. Who is this character? Yeah, that's, that's a loaded
2: question. Yeah. He's <laughs> not
1: Tom Parker for starters, is he?
2: No, it's not his real name. You know, he came over um, from the Netherlands and, you know, there's a lot of speculation as to why he came over and changed his name and all of that. You know, he's a very interesting character and it would be hard to capture all that in a two minute soundbite. Um and in, in the Elvis world there's a lot of debate about him too, good, bad and different, and I think you like Elvis, you kind of have to look at the Colonel over each decade as well. He is someone who who saw something in 1956 that would radically change the world and the Colonel saw that and he found a way to make it worldwide. He deserves a lot of the credit for that without question. Um the movies in the 60s, you know, he does get Elvis locked into those contracts too, but again what i found in studying elvis is that again understanding his relationship with poverty helps you understand his relationship with the colonel because a poor kid cannot turn down a million dollars to make a movie even if it's a bad movie he can't do that and and i think part of that is why he gets locked into those things too and doesn't stand up to the colonel you know elvis puts the colonel in charge of making the money he knows that's important he wants to he doesn't want to be poor again. He wants to keep his family out of poverty. He puts the colonel in charge of the money and making those decisions. And that's why the colonel gets a lot of the blame for a lot of things too. But, you know, Elvis does not take the lead on that aspect of his
0: career. So you mentioned Viva Las Vegas as one of the films that stood out from the dross. And that is actually, I think it is Probably my favorite Elvis movie because it has the flame-haired temptress that is Anne Margaret, and I find her just so captivating. She's this kitten with a whip, uh, which was another role of hers. And when she dances, she kind of just loses herself to the extent that her eyes roll back in her head. She has this like orgiastic (laughs) abandonment to, you know, the god of the dance. And uh, you can just see and feel the sizzle between Anne Margaret and Elvis on the screen. So was the sizzle there in real life between the two of them? It was there. And I will also say, just back to our previous conversation about about the movies,
2: you know, yeah. Elvis is rarely given someone to play equal against on screen, and that is intentional because the Colonel doesn't want, ever want Elvis to be upstaged, and there was a lot of controversy about that in making Viva Las Vegas. Because you do feel the connection between Elvis and Anne-Margaret. You see it. It, There is great chemistry. And if Elvis had been given a co-star like that on every film, I think we would talk much differently about his movies.
0: Yeah, yeah. Because she was an all-action, adventure kind of gal. She, you know, did tricks on her hog. You know, she straddled that motorcycle. She was all woman, but, you know, she knew how to play and she was just, uh, you know, she got along
2: well with the guys too, which I think was always more of a challenge for Priscilla, but you know, Anne Margaret talks about that, how I was just one of the guys and I didn't have an issue with the Memphis mafia people always being around and Elvis and I had our time alone too. Um, So she was a little more accepting, I think of all of that, but also, you know, I think maybe the big part was that she was also famous, right? So she understood fame. She understood understood fame and she understood why he would have those guys around because he did create his own insular world. Like I was going to go out to dinner. He couldn't, you know go out and hang out with friends at the bar like he had to have all of that at home because he couldn't leave and have a normal life so he created his normal life within his bubble and i think she probably had more understanding of that than probably any other woman he was ever with
1: what would it have been like sally to have been elvis in the middle of the 60s when as you say there's been a british invasion his initial spark has turned into something quite different he's been tamed I always think of the famous meeting he has with the Beatles because, of course, John Lennon idolized him and the Beatles probably wouldn't have been the Beatles without Elvis. And how underwhelmed they were to meet the king, how he seemed stupefied and not interested. And they were looking forward to it. These four men who had surpassed him in becoming the most famous musicians on the planet were underwhelmed by the king of rock and roll.
2: I've heard the story the other way around on this side of the pond. Ah. I don't know. (laughs) Oh. I've always I've always heard that story told as like they all just sat there because they were so nervous. They couldn't believe that it was Elvis Presley. They didn't know what to say. And he just was like, you know, he had finished filming. And they at one point he says, well, if no one's going to talk to me, I'm just going to go to bed. Oh, <laughs> oh there you <laughs> go, Tom. I've, that's how I've heard that story. Okay. And then um, and then, of course, the story that always makes me laugh that Paul McCartney talks about is how. Elvis was one of the first people to have a remote control. So Paul McCartney has talked about how, I main that guy really was the king. He could change the TV station from the couch like, without having to get up. It was the most amazing thing we had ever seen, um, you know. But it, I would imagine, just from a human perspective, they all felt the same way, right? They all felt the same way. Like here are these guys who are huge. And Elvis knows how huge they are. And here's Elvis, who's huge. And Beatles know how huge he was. So everybody's yeah. a little was a huge off. Everyone's yeah, <laughs> everybody's a little intimidated by each other. But that that ice was quickly broken. And then Paul and Elvis were playing guitar. And you know, the story goes on. So um that's how I've always heard it. But
0: I do love all the stories you hear about Elvis once he's ensconced in Las Vegas. The jam sessions he has late into the night with Bobby Gentry, Tom Jones, you know, just like topping each other. They're all like sitting on the bed with their guitars singing Oh my God, what I wouldn't have given to been a fly in the wall. Well, actually, I wouldn't like to be a fly. I'd like to be myself with all my limbs (laughs) Um, and a cocktail, preferably a martini in my hand. But um, yeah, can you talk a little bit about that? Like the mutual respect that was going on with all of these heavy hitters? Yeah, I think the 70s are such an interesting time because
2: Elvis has given the opportunity to make the music that he wants to make really for the first time. Because the 1950s as I said, you know, the Big Bang is kind of by accident. And then there's that sound and it's incredible. And he loved making that music, don't get me wrong, but he was a ballad and gospel guy, right? So I still think it's interesting in the 60s, not long after he gets back um, out of the army and he's making the movies, he does stop and make a gospel album. Again, a rock and roll star stopping to make a gospel album. So that was always part of what he wanted to do. And I think in the 70s, you know, he creates that sound. He has so many people on stage with him, as you know. You know, with all the background singers and everybody, to create that big sound that I think he originally heard through those gospel quartets, right? So, I think the '70s is the first time he's making the music that he wants to make, the music that interests him. And and then he's in Vegas, and these other guys are in Vegas, like you say, and it gives him a chance to really connect with other artists, which is something that Elvis really didn't get a lot of opportunity to do. Because he did live in this bubble, right? And I think it is a shame that he didn't spend more time with other artists because creatively that might have really driven him in a different direction.
1: Right, a little bit of a fire first here. Katie, we agreed on this. I think we should call a quick time out here and bring part one of this fascinating episode about Elvis Presley to a close. But don't worry, Katie, I can see you're worrying. This is not the end. Thing is, Sally's got so many stories about the king and we both want you to hear them all. So they're fresh and waiting for you in part two. Nice and easy, it's called Elvis Presley part two. So you can crack on with your elvis straight away. <laughs> Network, a place where you belong.
2: History is the greatest adventure story. But does it ever leave you wondering what the women were doing all that time?
0: revolutionary booksellers in 20th century Paris, the special friendship between the Marquis de Lafayette and Thomas Jefferson, and numerous others. Learn what you love and listen to the French history podcast today.
2: I'm Alison Holland, host of the Kennedy Dynasty podcast.